Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one bestseller, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, A Holistic Approach. And every week we share with you some tips about how you as a sensitive soul can live a life that is full of joy, prosperity, and health. And if you just want peace of mind, we can help you with that too. So if you are a highly sensitive person, you've come to the right place. Uh, I have a free gift for you. It is the Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide. And you can get that at sensitivesoulguide.com. Absolutely free. Again, sensitivesoulguide, all one word, dot com. And uh, I'm super excited for today's guest, who is Dr. Thomas Cowan. He's the author of multiple different books. And let me, before I share with you what we're talking about today, I want to share with you a little story about how I you know, kind of find found out about um, this new book called Cancer and the New Biology of Water. So I'm a fan of Weston A. Price and Sally Fallon, and I've had Sally Fallon on, on the show several times, met her in person, gone to, um, you know, uh, um, workshops with her and I had bought some books and I noticed Dr. Thomas Cowan, you know, he's a co-author of many of these books. I thought, well, these are really, really, really cool. And, um, and then along the way recently, I've been struggling with, well, let's just say being um, full of water. (laughs) So with the last couple of years, since I think about 2016, um, in the spiritual world, we call them ascension upgrades. And what happened was I would wake up two pounds heavier. And I thought, well, gee, I didn't change anything. Is this menopause? Like, you know, all this kind of stuff. And because of my topican healing, because of the questions we can ask the source, source kept telling me it was water. And I thought, okay, it looks like cellulite. You know, it looks like I'm getting fat. Right? So I went to the gym. I got a DEXA scan. And he was so pleased. He says, wow. Your lean muscle is, you know, your lean uh, tissue is great, and you don't have a lot of visceral fat. And I'm like, well, what's all this stuff on my belly? And he's like, uh, I think it's subcutaneous maybe, you know, but I knew it was different. And knowing that I wasn't going crazy, uh, I kept asking sore sources of water. And then I was introduced to Gerald Pollack's work about the fourth phase of water. I was really led to read that book and then interviewed him. And, of course, he couldn't ask, you know, answer some of the spiritual questions I had. But this, this, this theme of water kept coming over and over again that I was building in my light body EZ water, exclusion zone water, which is the fourth phase of water, like a gel in my body. And according to Dr. Pollock, this was a good thing, you know, but I'm like, wow, there's so much of it. Right? Um, and so I got some interesting information from Source about what the purpose of that is. And then I met Richard Fluke, who is going to be on my show, uh, you know, uh, pretty soon. And then he turned me on to this book, Cancer and the New Biology of Water with Dr. Thomas Cowan. And even just reading the description, it just totally ding, 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 totally resonated with me. It's like, I have to interview Dr. Thomas Cowan on my show. So we're going to be talking about cancer, um, what we've done in the past, which may or may not be, you know, for the highest good of all, and what we can shift our perspective uh, related to water, some new information and some amazing things that Dr. Cowan has revealed in his book about how we can see cancer in a different way and maybe cure cancer in a different way as well. So Dr. Cowan is the principal author of The Fourfold Path to Healing, co-author with uh, Sally Fallon, who I mentioned before, also the Nourishing Traditions book of baby and child care. Um, And this is the latest book we're talking about, Cancer and the New Biology of Water. He's also served as a vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophy, I can't say it, Anthroposophy, 
philosophic medicine <laughs> and a founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation, uh, who I'm, I am also a member of. And uh, he also writes the Ask the Doctor column in Wise Traditions in Food Farming and the Healing Arts. So, uh, you know, this has been um, really a, a work of love from Dr. Cowan, and uh, we are so overjoyed to have him on the show today. Hello, Dr. Cowan. Hi there. How are you Hi. doing? Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. We we have uh, a lot of people who are um, really into natural healing, you know, listening to the show. Uh, and definitely, you know, cancer is so almost ubiquitous, you know, in our lives right now. We would love to hear, first of all, about you, um, your medical doctor. Like, how did you kind of convert, if you will, from, like, regular medicine to this other type of you know natural healing well i mean the the un, un, i would say the unusual thing about my story is i never really converted because uh, i grew up in a situation where uh, all i can say is it was sort of expected that i would be a doctor i you know it just was the situation i was in and I just mm. never liked it. Uh, I just basically thought they were full of it, and they just didn't have any answers. And so I just tried to do anything but be a doctor and ended up joining the Peace Corps <laughs> to teach gardening and went to a place called Swaziland, which is in southern Africa. And there I was given books by Rudolf Steiner and Weston Price, which I think makes me the only person I know of who – heard about Weston Price and Rudolf Steiner in Swaziland. And I realized <laughs> at the time that there was an, the type of doctor I didn't want to be was not the only type of doctor there was. So I decided that, and that set off a kind of interest in me that I probably had never experienced before. So, you know, that was 44, 45 years ago, and I pretty much... Uh, been, you know, I've pretty much read or been interested in something about medicine or healing every, every day since. Uh, so I went to medical school with the idea that I was going to do, you know, food and anthroposophical medicine. And so it's just kind of evolved from there. Mm, wow, that's amazing. So in uh, spiritually speaking, when I talk to my folks about the um, what we call the three waves of volunteers, you would be in that wave of volunteer who are here to really radically shake up the establishment. And you started that very early. So, not, I mean, I had to convert uh, from my medical school training, and I was not exactly expected to be a medical doctor, but most Chinese children uh, in, you know, my, my family and friends, they were some sort of professional. Many, many became medical doctors. Uh, so although my parents didn't push me, you know, it was there. But I really, you know, my, my body took a big hit doing medicine, and um, I was just a really highly sensitive person. Uh, so, so it was really challenging. I had to get sick, you know, before I would convert. And I'm happy to hear that you already knew ahead of time before going into medical school, you know, what you were going to do uh, to change the face of, of medicine. So that is super cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's talk about your book. Um, let's start with some start with some stats. Uh, you know what what like how big a burden is this thing 
we call cancer in our reality right now? Yeah, I mean, the best way to say this, and, and the, really the perspective, is that in 1971, uh, when Richard Nixon, who was then president, announced the war on cancer, uh, approximately one out of six or one out of seven people were diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. And the the interesting thing about that announcement was he said that we were we now know the cause of cancer, and because of that, we can spend whatever money we need, and in 10 years, cancer will not be a problem for Americans anymore. That was the the announcement and the prediction. So it, when I wrote this book, it was very difficult to find out how much money has been spent on, you know, curing cancer since 1971, uh, because you're talking about all the research and all the salaries and all the buildings and all the drugs and all the surgery and all the rest. And my guess was it was in the three to five trillion. And my uh, wonderful editor talked me down into the high hundreds of billions, so I don't really know what the number is. Uh, I do know that it was it's the second biggest project that humans have ever engaged in, you know, besides making war on people. So so it was a huge project, and the there's a, a couple ways of, of reporting the outcome of that massive project. One is that now approximately one out of two people get cancer in their lifetime. So we went from one out of seven or six to one out of two. And and then, for example, in 2004, the Australian government did a huge uh, study of the beneficial effects of chemotherapy, which was the main tool used in cancer treatment out of the war on cancer. So 2004, they did a study sh uh, showing the benefit of this uh, modality, chemotherapy on cancer, and they said in the United States the benefit was about 2.1%, and in Australia it was about 2.3% improvement in the outcomes because of chemotherapy, which is basically nothing. So, you know, after 30 years of this massive effort, they had basically nothing to show for it. And and the only thing you could say is the whole problem is now worse, which, of course, they say then, well, we just need more money to study this. And now 20 years later, it's, you know, just getting worse. So, you know, there have been occasional breakthroughs which don't amount to really that much. But the whole thing was basically a massive failure. Wow, yeah, that sounds like a huge failure and a huge problem. And in that study in Australia in 2004, uh, when they were looking at endpoints or benefits, uh, what, what were those endpoints that they were measuring? Was it like mostly lifespan the length or quality of, time, of life? Or? Yeah, mostly the length of time people survived, which is the best measurement. Although it's tricky because if you if you – take one person with breast cancer and another person you screen with breast cancer and you catch it two years earlier and then because of the treatment they live two years longer, that's not necessarily a good thing because all you really did was start the clock sooner. So there's a lot of, you know, I would say outright fraud and 
and ways that people manipulate the numbers to make it seem like things are good. So, and even the, even then they say, you know, they report like now 50% of cancers are cured, but most of those are these sort of harmless skin cancers, which would have never really done anything anyways. So there's a lot of ways that the numbers can be manipulated. So they really just ran it based on how long did people survive compared to, you know, what they would have happened if they hadn't done chemo. And the answer was for the most of the common cancers, all stages, it wasn't very much. Now, wow. The, wow. when I, I took that as the sort of launch point of the book, because, you know, as you say, one of my, you know, roles in life is to question the fundamentals. And I, what, what I think happened here is the, in 1971, when I referred to they found the cause of cancer, every, uh, well, 99% of the research and the treatment and the development of, of strategies to deal with cancer has been based on this supposed cause of cancer, which they found in, in 71. And essentially, my, the book was about the, the, what they say was the cause of cancer was just flat out wrong. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I can describe why why I think it was wrong, if you want, um, which I think sure. would be helpful. But that was the problem. So, so what happened was in '71, the the research community uh, identified oncogenes or so-called somatic mutations as the cause of cancer. And what that means is, you know, the cell has two parts. It's basically a membrane-bound, uh, you know, entity that has a cytoplasm, which is the so-called watery part, and then it has another membrane, and that contains the nucleus. So a cell is a nucleus and a cytoplasm bound by a membrane. In the nucleus are chromosomes, which have genes on them. In humans, there's 22 pairs of somatic chromosomes and then an X and an X or an X and a Y. And so the theory was on one of these somatic chromosomes, which contain genes, and each gene makes a certain protein, at least that's a theory. And so there was a mutation or an error in one of these somatic genes, and that makes a faulty protein, which then drives the cancer. So that's the somatic mutation theory. In 71, they said one of two things is going to happen. Either all prostate cancer is going to have the same somatic mutation. So, you know, Joe's prostate cancer is the same as Fred's prostate cancer. It has one mutation, and we're going to find that mutation, and we're going to fix it or remove it or something, and then <clears throat> Joe and Fred will be fine. Or... It could have been, they said, that that every prostate cancer that in Joe's prostate tumor has the same somatic mutation. It might be different than Fred's, but each of those cells has a single somatic mutation, and so we're going to find that, and then we're going to fix that. So that was the theory. And unfortunately, what they find, or at least unfortunately for them, what they found was 
A, every uh, prostate cancer has a different set of somatic mutations. So if you look at Fred's prostate cancer, he has 64 mutations, and Joe's has 1,008, and they're all different. And not only that, if you look at the tumor, cell A has two mutations, cell B has 43, and cell C has 1,000, and every cell is seemingly different. So it's not only different in any one tumor, it's different that between in, in, in prostate cancer. So the guy who gave the keynote address to the American College of Oncology in, I think, 2016, essentially said, if oncogenes or somatic mutations are the problem, we'll never be able to do anything about this because it's so erratic and so complicated that there's no way to fix this. And that's wow. why after 50 years and trillions of dollars, you know, after studying these mutations, you know, 98% of the therapies have nothing to do with mutations. If you have get diagnosed with breast cancer, they, you know, cut off the tumor, cut off your breast, they radiate it, and they give you old-fashioned chemotherapy, most of which was around before 71, none of which have anything to do with mutations. Because the whole mutation thing has has, with very few exceptions, given no benefit or resulted in no successful therapies. But the real problem is that these somatic mutations are not the cause. They're not driving the cancer process in the first place. There, there are mutations, that's obvious, but they're the result. And the way I know that is because there have been very simple experiments, which are all referenced in my book, where, and this is one of the most important things for people trying to understand this to realize. If you take two cells, a healthy, two healthy cells, you can tr take the nucleus out of one and put it into the cytoplasm of the other healthy cell, and the progeny will be healthy. And then if you take a cancer cell and a healthy cell, and you can take the, the nucleus out of the healthy cell and put it into the cytoplasm of the cancer cell, the uh, progeny will be cancer. And then you can do the reverse, and you can take the uh, – I can't remember which one I said, but you can take a healthy nucleus yeah, or, or a healthy cytoplasm. Or a cancer nucleus. Yeah, you can put you can take a cancerous nucleus and put it into a healthy cytoplasm and the progeny will be healthy and you can do the opposite and take a healthy uh a, a put a healthy nucleus into a cancerous cytoplasm and the progeny will be cancer. And what that tells you without any doubt is that the problem of cancer is in the cytoplasm not in the nucleus. And if it's not in the nucleus, it can't be in the chromosomes. And if it's not in the nucleus, it can't be in the genes. And so this whole genetic theory of cancer is, you know, basically hogwash. Lot. And Yeah, absolutely. What? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. just nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is in the cytoplasm. It's easily proven. It's been done over and over. And the interesting thing is when these researchers do this and they say, 
yeah, I took a healthy, uh, I took a cancerous nucleus where the genes are, put it into a healthy cytoplasm, and the and the progeny are normal. That must mean the the healthy cytoplasm has some factor that can heal the genes, which of course is nonsense because there's no such thing. Oh, okay, that was the conclusion. That was the conclusion, and. The way I describe this, because I like to talk in pictures so people can see it, it's like it's like you come upon somebody looking for something under a streetlight, and you say, you know, you help them look for a minute, and then you say, what are you looking for? He says, my keys. And you look, and then you say, well, where'd you lose them? He said, over there in the bushes. And then you say, well, why are you looking under the streetlight? And he says, because the light's better which the light is easier in the nucleus. It's easy to study genes. The problem is that's not where your keys are. And you can look for another 100 years, and you will never find the solution. Uh, you never find the cause, and if you can't find the cause, you can't find uh, the solution, and that's where we are in, in conventional oncology. Well, it sounds almost crazy. I was thinking about this last night that because uh, my, my husband is watching this um, TV series called Breaking Bad where the guy is on chemo and the whole bit, and it's very interesting, some of the reactions of the doctors uh, when he gets better when he's off his chemo for a couple of days. But the thing is I'm like, okay, so if we if we go – uh, even just like fast forward 30 years from now, and or, or I be, I'm an alien and I'm looking at all the different therapies that we do on people, it doesn't make any logical sense to me at all at this point why you would toxify the body to make it better. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yet, as a medical doctor, we could get in major trouble and get our offices shut down if we do not offer what's called the standard of care, which is let's pump a whole bunch of toxic chemicals in someone and really hope that they get better. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit bizarre uh, because the problem is the reason why they have a problem in the first place is they're being poisoned. And, <clears throat> you know, when I a lot of times with my patients and when I do lectures and people don't necessarily see that, I say to them, Imagine you were a dolphin doctor, and you, you had been studying dolphins near the Arctic Circle, and the dolphins had been fined for, you know, decades, centuries. And then something happens, and the dolphins start dying. Not all the dolphins, but a lot of them. So they call you up there to see what happened. And then you, have, you can only ask them one question to try to find out what happened. So then I ask my patients, what question would you ask them? Mm. Now, if you think about that for a minute, uh, I know what the question I would ask them, which is, you know, hey, did somebody put some nasty stuff in the water, like an oil mm -hmm. spill or mm -hmm. something, right? That's what everybody mm -hmm. would ask them. Nobody would ask them, you know, can I examine the genetics of this dolphin or that dolphin? Nobody would say, is there a new virus or or you know, do, do these dolphins have psychological problems or anything like that? Who Somebody poisoned the water, and that's usually what happened. And so dolphins swim in water, so it's obvious that you would ask about the water with dolphins. Humans swim in a, you know, a complex 
uh, electromagnetic field of the Earth, which includes a lot of things, and somebody poisoned our water, and that's why we're sick. You know, when I was growing up, I used I lived right across the street from a wetland, and the reason it was of interest to me was because they had all these frogs in the in the wetlands. And I was a light sleeper, and they used to make a big old racket. So I used to tape my windows and everything. And then around about fourth grade, the the croaking stopped, and all the frogs died. And, again, if you were a frog doctor, you would say, what happened to the frogs? Well, somebody sprayed DDT into the water, and all the frogs died. It's not... It's not that complicated. It's not <laughs> that there was something genetic defect of these frogs or that they have oncogenes or that they had a viral infection. I mean, there that could happen, but that's not what usually happens. So, but apparently for whatever reason, uh, you know, medical doctors of which I'm one, we didn't we weren't trained like that or taught like that and that that way of thinking just escapes us. No, we weren't taught about what now, you know, is like the, the sexy thing to talk about is epigenetics, how our environment changes the expression of our genes. We, we didn't have a term. We didn't know about that. And, and yeah, most of us just assume, the, or and, and maybe some of us don't now, but most average person assumes that if they have a cancer, it must be passed down in the genes. Right. Which is crazy because, you know, two generations ago, there was almost no breast cancer. A doctor could go a whole whole life without seeing a case of breast cancer, and now it's about one in eight or so women. And that's not genetic. I mean, there's right. no well, argument they, that that's a genetic problem. Well, and also we could, uh, we, we don't want to talk too much about it, but also, you know, the people talking about the increasing rise in autistic children, that it's soon going to be one and two if, if the trend keeps continuing. And, you know, people are just assuming, oh, it's just a genetic or genetic mutation or something like that. And it's like, you know, there, there haven't been that many um, generations uh, of, of, because it takes a while, you know, for people to have kids and, and stuff like that. There haven't been that many generations to cause genetically a passing down of this to cause that expression of, you know, genes. Yeah, of, of I mean, autism. that's nonsense. The first case of autism we know was in 37. So that's not a genetic problem. Yeah, well, I know some people will argue, well, we didn't have criteria or, you know, we didn't catch them early enough and we just thought they were crazy and we put them in psychiatric wards. And Anyway, so we won't go down that, that argument for now, but we'll stick to our, our cancer. Um, so share with us uh, what, you're, you know, what you've discovered related to water. And we talked about the cytoplasm. So how does that, what does that have to do with water and cancer? So, so. First of all, then, now we know that uh, cancer is a problem of the cytoplasm because that's easily demonstrated and it has been repeated over and over again. So then the, the next obvious question is, what is the cytoplasm? So again, uh, we, we learned in medical school, and, you know, I was an ER doctor for a while just to, you know, essentially make money. Um, but... We learned that the cytoplasm is 70% water, and there's a bunch of stuff dissolved in it, like Golgi apparatus and mitochondria and 
endoplasmic reticulum and all that. So 70% water, and then we all learn in science class that matter has three phases, solid, liquid, and gas. So that's obviously not ice, so, and it's not steam. So the water in our cells is liquid water. So then I'm an ER doctor 35, 40 years ago, and people were shot and bayoneted and all that stuff. And amazingly, I never once saw anybody squirt out water from their leg. Um, and so I started wondering, so where's the water? You know, we know that it's 70% of the cytoplasm is water, and it must be liquid. That's what we were told. And there's yet there's no water. There's blood, but there's no water. So over the years then, I, I started realizing, and I'm not the only one, that the cytoplasm is 100% structured water. And that means it's in a gel, similar to like what Jello is. And when once one understands that, it changes everything. Now, for because the gel of, in the cytoplasm essentially does everything. It is the basic, fundamental unit of life. And let me describe a little bit about how that relates to cancer. If you if you sort of get out of one's intellectual head and just say, okay, here's a tumor, let's say a breast tumor, what, what do you experience from that? This is just pure observation and using one's senses. So the normal breast tissue feels a certain way, and then you get to the tumor, and it feels like a hard rock, hard. and then you go away. What? It's hard. So yeah. the question is, why are all tumors hard? The answer is, is because normal tissue, like breast or prostate or pancreas or whatever, has a certain density of the cells. In other words, they have a certain spatial orientation, like a, a millimeter apart or whatever number that is. And that, that number is different between any tissue, so breast is different than prostate, but all breast tissue has a certain spatial orientation. The problem with a tumor is that spatial orientation is lost, and now that all the cells are piled up on each other, and so the density of the cells has increased, they no longer respect each other's borders, and they no longer line up and create a healthy, normal tissue. They're just in a big old pile that's too dense, and that's why we feel it as a tumor. So in other words, one of the fundamental characteristics of a tumor is a change in the spatial orientation of the cells. I also describe why spatial orientation is so important, and this includes everything from cells to people. Because when I talk with a patient, I'm usually about six feet away and there's a certain distance. And I say, what would it feel like if I put my chair all the way at the other end of the room? It just doesn't feel right. Or another, what if I put my face six inches from your face and we had the same conversation about what you should do and everything, and that would most people would run out of the room and think this guy's a nutcase. And all I did was change the spatial orientation between us. And it's easy to see that that changes everything, even though it's same words, same clothes, same degree, same everything. Change the space, and you change everything. 
So the question then is, how does this spatial orientation come about? And, of course, there's, you know, conventional science and medicine has an answer. Cells have a charge around them, and that charge creates voltage, which creates essentially the energy of life. So every breast cell uh, has a negative charge around it. Two negatively charged cells come together. They keep their distance, and you get a healthy spatial orientation. Now, the next question then is, how does this charge come about? And this was the answer. The answer to that was something that medicine and science has discovered over hundreds of years. Because one of the central biology questions was, how do cells, you know, human cells, other mammalian cells, they live in a salt-rich environment, but yet they have low sodium inside, high sodium outside, and high potassium inside the cell, and low, sodium, low potassium outside the cell. How does that happen? Because that, char- that distribution of ions, this difference between sodium and potassium, it doesn't equilibrate like you would think it would but it, it has high, so high potassium inside, high, low sodium inside. That creates the charge around the cell. So how does that happen? So hundreds of years, every doctor knows that. It's because there's a sodium-potassium pump in the membrane. It pumps the sodium out, pumps the potassium in. That creates the charge around the cell. That creates the spatial orientation. That's how it works. That's why we have drugs that affect the sodium-potassium pump. That's why it's, you know, Nobel Prizes were given for the elucidation of the sodium-potassium pump proteins. It's one of the crowning achievements in biology. The problem is it's nonsense. And I, I give credit <laughs> to a biologist. Well, every I give cell credit to the same, then, if that was the only truth. What? Every cell would look the same if that was the only truth. Yeah, well, so a guy named Gilbert Ling, who's probably the best biologist ever, uh, said, okay, let's study this. And what he found was the energy needed to run this pump is about 30 times the amount of energy that the cell has in total. And so the whole math, it doesn't work. It's like... If you have a mortgage on your house that's $30,000 and you make $2,000 a month, you can't run your system. You can't even pay the mortgage. So there's no way yeah. this pump uh, creates this charge, charge differential. Got it. So that, the question then is how is this charge differential happen? Because that, that essentially controls the whole process. And what Ling was able to discover, and this is – such a miracle and such an important point that seemingly nobody understands, except Ling described it in 20 years of detail, is that it turns out, as I said, all of the water in the cytoplasm is in the form of this very specific crystalline uh, mesh. It's basically like jello, but it has a very specific uh, essentially mesh size, so, and this, this mesh size, because of its size, attaches to potassium and excludes sodium 
with no energy needed. And I can't emphasize how important that is to basically all biological processes. That is the essentially the fundamental unit of life. In other words, it's like a mosquito netting. The mosquito netting has to be a certain size to let the air in and keep the mosquitoes out. If the mesh is too big, you know, if you cut holes in it or you disturb it, then it won't keep the mosquitoes out and the whole thing won't work. So the, the, the gel water in our cells, it's basically formed by the, just like jello, the mixture of proteins in the, in the cell, in the cytoplasm, mixes with water, forms this very specific mesh. That mesh attaches to potassium, excludes sodium, creates the charge around our cells, that creates the energy of life and the spatial orientation of the cells. And when that, when that mesh is disturbed, it can't do this separation of sodium potassium. It can't create a charge. The cells lose their connection to each other, and then we have cancer. And I would only say to people who say, well, how do I know that? You know, what's the proof of that? There's a very clear proof of that, which is that the guy who invented the MRI machine, so we have this, te this, this test called an MRI, and you can have somebody with a cancer, and you do an MRI, and it says, oh, I can see this, this t part of your breast. That's where the tumor is because I can see it on the MRI. So if you ask then the doctors or the radiologists, what is this MRI measuring? I mean, I didn't know that, and most doctors, they turns out they don't know that. But it's actually measuring the state of the structure of the water in your cytoplasm. In fact, the inventor of the MRI machine credited Ling with providing the theoretical foundation, which then he turned into software, that oh. essentially the machine measures the structure or the, the crystalline nature of the water, and when the crystalline nature of the water is disturbed, he can, then it shows up as a cancer or an abnormal tissue on, on his test. So well, is the that very also why way... You know, people can't see, uh, like, like, the spine in an X-ray. Like, some people will have a back pain. They'll get an X-ray. They think, well, the X-ray was normal, and that's the end of that. But then, you know, MRI was invented, and it was like, well, you know, your spine might look okay, doesn't explain the pain, but you might have a, a pinched whatever, you know, spinal cord, which they can see because it has water in it. Right. An MRI machine is a water-sensing device. There's, that's the, how the technology was developed. So it's just curious to me, since the very test we, we use to assess integrity of the tissue is a measurement of the water, why people don't think measuring the water or evaluating the water is, is an intimately related to this whole process of disease, uh -huh. every disease, including cancer. It also turns out, and I have you know, irrefutable evidence of this, and again, the references are in the book, that it turns out that the, the expression of the DNA is controlled by water also because DNA has a column of structured water uh, down the middle 
and essentially the shape of the DNA is determined by the crystalline water matrix that it's embedded in. And the shape determines how it functions. It's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. That we think that it's the primary sequence of the DNA, you know, the nucleic acids, that determines the structure. But it turns out it's not. It's the matrix, the water gel that it's embedded in, that determines the function of the DNA. So even the abnormal uh, expression of the DNA, even the abnormal mutations, are basically can be easily traced back to a defect in the ability of water to form structures. So the entire question of, you know, cancer in particular, but essentially all disease, uh, because I was really looking for a unified theory of disease here, is anything that 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 furthers the the healthy structure crystalline structuring of water in our cells creates health, and anything that destroys the structure of the water in our cells and in our tissues creates disease. It's you know almost as simple as that, although. The, the nature of what does what gets a little complicated, but that's that's essentially what where that led me. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we have a couple of questions here, and for those that are calling in, uh, if you would like to ask a question, the number is 818-514-1190. Hit 1 so you know your hand is up. 818-514-1190. So in the meantime, we have two questions here, Dr. Cowan. Um, uh, number one is one of mine, and, and that is, uh, you know, if all <clears throat> all healthy cells have a particular structure uh, with structured water in our cells, um, how do we? How does one cell become, say, a you know, a um, a cell that makes fascia versus a cell that is a pancreas cell, since they all have structure, you know, in how do they know to become a pancreas cell versus a fascial cell? That's question number one. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, what I would say is that gets into some complicated stuff because uh, so the basically the the crystalline water in our cells acts like a receiver or an antenna for all the electromagnetic field impulses that life on earth is exposed to uh, and there's a lot of ways that I that I can demonstrate that and prove that so when you go back into the history of like what is a liver you know and so now I'm based I'm basing this on you know all old Chinese texts and old al alchemist texts and the work of Rudolf Steiner and the work of other esoteric people who studied what I would call esoteric anatomy. They would say that, interestingly, the liver is a essentially a creation of the forces of Jupiter. And people, of course, nowadays say, what the hell does that mean? I mean, where, where does that come from? So, but, you know, it's interesting because your question, so how does the liver become a liver cell? And the, the, Normal science says, well, it's the, it's the genes that tell it. But the genes are the same in each cell. So why, how come this right. cell knows 
its genes should make a liver cell and this one a pancreas. But what, what seems to happen here is that the water becomes the antenna, becomes the receiver of, in this case, specifically the forces that emanate from, you know, well, from a lot of places, but particularly Jupiter. So that creates a slightly different crystalline structure, which then tells the DNA, we need this kind of protein here, uh, as opposed to a different kind of protein there. So that, that changes the structure that the DNA is embedded in, which, which then unmasks uh, certain areas of the DNA in the liver cell, which create the proteins that become the structure of the liver cell. And a different, right. you know, the liver is based on the energies of Jupiter and the kidneys is based on the energies of Venus and the brain based on the moon. And so these were all sort of common designations from, you know, old uh, ways of thinking about it, which we now are trying to measure and see, is there in fact a relationship between certain field energies uh, and different organs or different, you know, tissues of the body. Well, it's I also know interesting. Dr. Lipton's, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Bruce Lipton's work. I, I remember him saying, mentioning that if you put a stem cell, a pluripotent kind of cell in a different media or environment, one might become an eyeball and another might become a heart cell. Uh, so there's something right. in the media and the environment that changes the genetic expression of this pluripotent cell. And Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, uh, who coined, you know, the whole morphic field word, would say probably that there's a positive morphic field for a healthy liver cell uh, that somehow is the blueprint for the cells to know how to make a healthy liver. Right. And my point is only with that, whether it's Jupiter or whether it's a morphic field or whether it's whatever, that the only way that this can work the only receiver we have is it changes that that that's why water is the medium of life because water can can form itself into an infinite variety of these mor- morphic or crystalline shapes so the morphic field or the energy field of the liver has a slightly different energetic field and therefore it organizes the water in a slightly different way, which then organizes the DNA in a slightly different expression. The point is, if you, if you, all of it has to go through water. There is no other way that you can, you can translate a morphic field or an energetic field or a thought or the energy of Jupiter or whatever it is. There's no other way you can translate energy into structure except by going through water. That's why water, no water, no life, because water is, uh-huh. is the only thing that has the crystalline nature and the flexibility to do that. Wow, that's amazing. Now, the other question, I, it may be a little challenging to, to answer. Um, uh, you know, what, I, what I've been working with people, uh, some of these people have souls from different places, not necessarily human souls. And what I found was that, myself included, is that some of us with the ascension process, so to speak, 
are creating huge amounts of easy or crystalline water in our body, but not just inside the cell, uh, which seemingly is a good thing, but in between the fascial layers or the meridians where they lie. So we get this gel-like substance, you know, flowing in that area, but sometimes it's too much for our physical body. Like it's like we, I've gained all this weight. Um, I have other people. It's literally the same soul types keep swelling, and they're asking here uh, on the show, how do we get rid of, you know, the excess water that we're creating? Um, obviously, they have a great degree of uh, spiritual charge. These folks are uh, able to do amazing, fantastical things that in the past we think were just magical. Um, so I said, well, I promise I'll ask this question. I don't know whether Dr. Cowan can answer it, but, but you know, what about these people collecting all this easy water in their fascia? Like, wh- what is that? Like, wh- how do they get rid of it? I mean, the only thing I would say about that is I I have – serious doubts as to whether the water that's collecting is actually properly structured crystalline water. And my guess is that's not the case because because if you think about, you know, and that's why I'm sort of calling this a kind of a unified field theory of disease. If somebody has edema in their legs, that's because too much of their water, which should be you know, all the all the water in your cells and tissues should be in this crystalline form, but we know that certain things, particularly electromagnetic fields, deteriorate your ability to structure water, and the water becomes essentially liquid, and that's what you can see on an MRI. Liquid water is essentially dead water, and so it it then does what anything dead does, which is it succumbs to gravity, and it builds up in your legs and feet. So that's that's essentially non-living water. That's why you get swelling. And if you say they don't I have, have a, I have in the lower le- the what? That's not where they have the swelling. That's not where they have the swelling. Their lower limbs right. are slim. Right. But I I so, still think that 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 what if if you're getting water that's not circulating that's essentially acting as dead water that's because the structure of of that water in that tissue is is not as healthy as it should be and it's becoming more like liquid water and that's a problem well i agree that extra liquid water is a problem for sure but it sounds like it's possible that if we used an mri we'd be able to differentiate between the two types of water like if someone was swelling, whether that was, you know, bulk water, uh, Gerald Pollack talks about bulk water, you know, just sitting in the tissues versus structured water, which probably would look different on MRI, wouldn't it? It does look different. Um, and if somebody, if, if what you're saying is that certain people have too much of this properly structured water that's building up in their tissues, I mean, all I can say is that would that would really surprise me. And if that's the case, I'd have to really think about why that would happen, because okay. at this well, point you, you, I'm, and not, I'm not buying it. Figure that out. <laughs> All right, I understand. Okay, we have. A, I know you have about uh, four minutes left here. Uh, I'm going to unmute one person, and before we do that, uh, I wanted to share with our folks where they can learn more about your work. 
So some websites, uh, humanheartcosmicheart.com. You can find Dr. Cowan there. So again, humanheartcosmicheart, all one word, .com. And also check out some of the uh, amazing organic vegetable powders that he has as well. There's actually a low oxalate one that was kind of exciting. I was going to turn turn that on with a friend of mine because he, he was having problems with oxalates. So it's uh, www.drcowansgarden.com, all one word www.drcowansgarden.com and you can find this book uh, Cancer and the New Biology of Water at Amazon, that's where I got mine um, so let's just uh, I'm just going to unmute this person real quick, just uh, summarize your question in about 30 seconds if you can, hi, who's this? Carolyn Hey Carolyn Hi, what's your question for Dr. Hey. Cowan? Hi Dr. Cowan um, the question, of course, I need to buy your book, but the prevention factor in terms of do you take structured water, do you stay away from EMF, are there certain protection, uh, you take mistletoe. <laughs> so knowing what you know, what is the prevention? Right. I mean, that that's a, you're, you're right. In some ways, that's what the whole book is about. But, I mean, first of all, it's, it's not so simple to drink structured water and then you get structured water in your cells. The structured water in your cells comes about because of, of the same way, essentially, that we make jello. When you make jello, you put gelatin proteins and then you put water and then nothing happens. So then you heat the mixture and that unfolds the proteins so that they can interact with the water, attach to the water. And then when you cool it, it forms a gel. So in our cells, we have these proteins, mostly actin. They, they form like a cytoskeleton, and they're folded, and then there's water. And then interestingly, the thing that plays the role of heat in, the, in, in our cells, because we can't use a Bunsen burner in our cells, is ATP. So even though most everybody thinks ATP is the source of energy, it's not. What happens is ATP attaches to the proteins, unfolds them, and allows them to interact with water and form this crystalline gel. So in order to have properly structured water, you have to have you know, healthy ATP synthesis, which means you have to have healthy mitochondria. And so anything that affects your mitochondria, like antibiotics or non-native EMFs, you know, 4G, 5G, uh, all that stuff, uh, aluminum, heavy metals, infections, all that will affect your ability to structure your water. So, you know, essentially I went through all the normal cancer programs and, and talked about them in relation to either ATP synthesis, so we're talking ketogenic diet or deuterium-depleted water, and the Gerson diet, which was all about the sodium-potassium balance, and looked at them from the aspect of how does that look if we know about that the real key is the structured water. And you can see that essentially all the holistic therapies for cancer, whether they knew it or not, were dealing with structured water. In fact, when Steiner was asked what does mistletoe therapy do, he said it's a treatment for the etheric body. I mean, the etheric body is just the water body. So even that was essentially what I'm talking about. So 
you know, basically the book is a is a is an essentially an argument for why this is the important part, and then what you can do about it. You know, to try to essentially not end up with deteriorated water in yourself. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Okay. Thank you so much, and thank you, Caroline, for asking the question. Okay. All right. Yes, and unfortunately, that we, that's all the time we have for today's show. Dr. Cowan, thank you so much for being on the show. Amazing book, and I, like I said, you're just, you know, out there um, changing the perspective, <laughs> you know, waking us up to a different perspective. I so highly appreciate you, your work, uh, and so thank you for writing this very important book. Okay. Thank you for having me on your show. My pleasure. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Until next time, bye for now. Okay. Bye-bye.